Well, good morning. My name's Michael. I serve with the mission organization UFM Worldwide. It's a great privilege to be able to share from God's Word with you today. Sorry not to be able to be with you in, in person. Maybe another time. We're thinking this morning about what it takes to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. And we're going to be looking at that passage that was read to us from Romans chapter 15. Let me pray and then we'll listen to what God might teach us today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to pray this morning, please, that you would move our hearts with a passion and a concern and a love for those who are lost without the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray, please, you would hear our prayers that you might raise up workers for the harvest fields. We pray to you that you would encourage us and spur us on to be involved in this great privilege and responsibility of seeing the gospel go to the nations. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 2,000 years after Jesus looked out among the crowd and saw people lost like sheep without a shepherd, we can look around the world today and see the harvest is still plentiful and the workers are still few. In the Republic of Ireland, there are 50 towns with no evangelical church. In Indonesia, where we used to serve, there are 37 people groups where no one has yet gone with a plan to plant a church. The largest of those groups has a population the size of Edinburgh. In northern Yemen, where the population is 8 million, the population of Scotland and Wales combined, there are probably about 20 or 30 believers. Not 20 or 30 small groups, not even 20 or 30 congregations, no, 20 or 30 believers. We're thinking this morning from God's word about what is involved in taking the gospel to places like that. What's involved for those who might go and what's involved for those who might send. Two big things for us to consider from Romans 15. The first is this. If the gospel is to be preached where Christ is not known, we need to see some gospel ambition in our lives. Gospel ambition. We see ambition all over the place, don't we, in our society and in our culture. Sometimes that ambition is misplaced. We have that lovely phrase, in the English language, that's a bit ambitious. <laughs> the polite British way of saying it's never going to happen. Then I guess we see the more kind of raw or determined ambition caricatured in programs like The Apprentice, the business reality show some of you may have seen over the years. This is what one of the contestants said a few years ago. I regret not becoming a scientist so I could clone myself and become more successful in half the time. It's all a bit crass, isn't it? I guess people like out of playing for the cameras. But I wonder really that underlying sentiment, isn't it, isn't it there in many of us actually? The whole system and culture around us drives us in that direction, doesn't it? It starts from the earliest of ages. At my girls' school in Indonesia, an Indonesian school with an English slogan which said this, dream, believe, achieve, if you like the Disney approach to ambition in life. Now, of course, there is something good, isn't there, and commendable about the idea of using our gifts to serve other people, of making a difference in our world. Yet the reality is too often our ambitions become what the Bible might call a selfish ambition. The ambitions are all about us, the, the dreams, the hopes, the goals. They are self-seeking and self-serving. 
If you know your Bible, you'll know that it puts selfish ambition in the same category as some of these things. Jealousy and hatred, arrogance and slander. Selfish ambition, the Bible says, is to be avoided at all costs. Yet when Paul speaks of ambition here in Romans 15 and verse 20, we've got to see he's speaking about something very different indeed. Notice he's not lacking in drive. He's not lacking in motivation or focus or energy. He has the ambition, yet it's not about him. Take a look. Romans 15 verse 20, Paul writes, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Here is what we might call a gospel ambition. It's about something else. It's about someone else. Paul's great ambition is to see the gospel preached where it's never been preached before. The church planted and established where it's never been planted before. You know, sometimes when we talk about places where the gospel has yet to go, we use phrases like unreached people groups, unengaged people groups. In Indonesia, the phrase that's used is suku uh, terabaikan, which literally translated means a people ignored. Paul's burning ambition is that he would not ignore people who had yet to hear of the Lord Jesus. You know, when I first saw an ambition like this, I think I didn't even notice it. I was about 10 years old. We were on holiday in France as a family. My mum and dad used to support missionaries serving uh, in, in, in Europe. And we went to visit these guys. It was a market day. You can picture the scene, the, the French cheeses and the wines and the fruits and the veg and the, the boulangerie and patisserie. It was all there, idyllic French scene. And then into the market uh, came the missionaries in their van. They, they came every week. They would park their van next to the market. They would open the side of their van to reveal a mini Christian bookshop. I watched as a 10 year old, as these two missionaries spent the next hour or so talking to the small numbers of passers-by, trying to engage them with the gospel, trying to give out New Testaments, trying to give out Christian literature. I remember thinking to myself, again, as a 10 year old lad, maybe not converted at that time, can you imagine doing this for your job when you grow up? didn't seem to be screaming ambition to me. I almost pitied them as I saw how they were investing their lives. I wonder what drove those missionaries to do something that certainly in the world's eyes would look really quite pathetic. What lay behind Paul's own ambition to take the gospel to places where it was yet to go? Well, of course, for Paul, it wasn't so he could plant his flag in the sand before anyone else turned up. No, something else drove him. Something else spurred him on to, to give himself to the least reached. The same something, no doubt, that got those missionaries in France out of bed every morning. And Paul tells us what that was there in verse 21. You see, here is the motivation behind the ambition. Here is the dream. Here is the goal. Here is the, the great desire. Verse 21, rather, that is, rather than building on someone else's foundation, rather than preaching the gospel where it's already been preached before, rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Friends, isn't that incredible? Isn't that an incredible motivation for a gospel ambition? 
You see, selfish ambition will always look way more appealing than a gospel ambition. The latest smart car, the Riverside penthouse apartment advertised at the back of the weekend papers, it's always going to seem more aspirational than taking the van to the marketplace in France. That's the reality. Until we see the motivation for gospel ambition, until we grasp or recover the joy of seeing people saved. Those who were not told about him will see. And those who have not heard will understand. And we say, well, what will they see? What will they understand? Well, what has Paul just been writing about in this letter to the Romans? They will see that a righteousness from God has been revealed, that they don't need to spend their whole life in this futile exercise of trying to do enough good that God might somehow be pleased with them. They will see that whilst they were still sinners, Jesus Christ, he died for them. They will see that whilst the wages of sin is death, so the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. They will see there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, isn't this an ambition that's worth living for? Isn't this something worth devoting ourselves to as churches, as individuals, that dead people might come to life, that lost people might be found, that sinners might be set free? that those who have never seen and never understood might call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Friends, I wonder where your ambitions lie today. Maybe I could say to you, maybe younger people today, the world is screaming out to you every day, live for now, live in the moment and live for yourself. Get yourself on reality TV, get yourself a place on Love Island, get your moment of fame. Friends, God has something bigger and better for you to invest your life in than that. There is a permanent ambition to give yourselves to a gospel ambition. It's this kind of ambition I read about in a UFM application form not too long ago. This couple were applying to do student ministry in Central Asia, uh, where many unreached people uh, are. This is what he wrote. He said, the gospel is simply brilliant news. It must be shared. I'm willing to go. Plenty are willing to stay and so I must go. How can I not offer myself for overseas missionary service? How can I not go? Notice he mentioned that overseas missionary service. Now let's be clear, very, very clear. This gospel ambition that Paul speaks about, it can be realised close to home. In fact, we want to go further than that, don't we? We want to say this kind of gospel ambition, it must be realised close to home as we see the secular agenda continue to sweep through Scotland and other parts of the UK. As we see the great gospel need very much close to home, we say this kind of ambition, it must be realised close to home. Of course, that's the case. Praise God for those of you investing your lives in that way already. Yet, friends, we need to see this gospel ambition that Paul speaks about is always a global ambition. The whole world is in view. This kind of ambition, it, it rejects the approach to life where, where the blinkers go on and all we're concerned about is our own backyard. Notice the quote here in verse 21. You'll see perhaps from the footnotes in your Bible, it's taken from Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 15. The servant song. It speaks of the suffering of God's servants. 
I wonder who was in mind as these words were originally spoken. Well, let me read from Isaiah 52. I'm going to read verses 13 to 15. Again, who is in mind as these words are originally spoken? See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. And here's the quote, for what they were not told, they will see and what they have not heard, they will understand. You see, the nations were in mind as the prophet first spoke. And so too with Paul, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, as he writes this letter to the church in Rome. Gospel ambition, we see, is always global in scope. The world is always in view. So friends, can I ask, when it comes to mission, what are we dreaming about? What do we long to see happen in this place where you are in Edinburgh, from this place? We praise God, don't we, for the mission heritage of a place like Charlotte Chapel in Edinburgh. We praise God for those who've been sent. We praise God for those who've faithfully done the sending. We praise God for those who are serving today. And we continue to ask the Lord, Lord, will you raise up more workers for the harvest fields? Friends, I wonder from among you who might be next to go, who might be next to send. You see, the pressure is on us always, isn't it, as churches to make the ambitions all about now and all about ourselves. The pressure is there for all of us. If we give in to that temptation, it's not too long, is it, before our churches are only aware of our own locality. We're only aware of people like us. We're only reaching out to people that we know. Friends, let's go on resisting that temptation. Let's go on. Or maybe for some of you today, let's begin to embrace this global gospel ambition. Let's pray that God might go on raising up workers from your congregation to go to places and peoples where Christ is not known. And also let's embrace the reality, friends, that this ambition is for all of us. It's not just for the few who get on a plane and go to a place they've never lived in before. No, you see, this kind of ambition, it causes some to go, but it it demands that the rest of us send. Notice here in our passage that Paul is so dependent on the local church. We see it there in chapter 15 and verse 24. I plan to do so when I go to Spain, that is to visit them. I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and that you will assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. See, he hopes these guys will send him on his way to the next place where he'll take the gospel. In verse 30, he calls them to join him in in his struggle in prayer for the mission he's involved in. And we know from many other parts of the New Testament, notably Acts 13, that the privilege and responsibility of sending and supporting a mission rests primarily with the local church. Again, we praise God for the many involved in Charlotte Chapel who for many years have been involved in this beautiful sacrificial, costly ministry of sending. If this is you this morning, be encouraged to keep going in this good work that you are doing. If the gospel is to be preached where Christ is not known, we need to see some gospel ambition. 
Second thing to say, if the gospel is to be preached where Christ is not known, we need to take some costly initiative. Costly initiative. William Carey, sometimes known as the father of modern missions, he famously wrote these words. Many of you will have heard them before, I'm sure. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. It's a great phrase. I guess it fits with the theme of gospel ambition that we've been thinking about already this morning. But of course, like many stirring words and phrases, they are utterly meaningless unless they're translated into action. No point in them sitting on a nice calendar or Christian fridge magnet if nothing changes as a result. Carey himself, of course, knew that only too well. And so he also wrote the following. He said, we must not be contented, however, with praying without exerting ourselves in the use of means for the obtaining of those things we pray for. Were the children of light but as wise in their generation as the children of this world, they would stretch every nerve to gain so glorious a prize, nor ever imagine it was to be obtained in any other way. What's he saying there? I think he's saying something like this. When it comes to reaching the lost, when it comes to preaching Christ where he isn't known, he's saying don't just have the ambition. In fact, he's saying don't just pray about the ambition. You must pray as we just saw earlier on, verse 30. You must struggle in prayer. Look, he's saying don't just have the ambition. Don't just pray about the ambition, but do something about the ambition. Stretch every nerve and sinew in your body to see that ambition realised. It's what Paul did. Take a look again at verse 22. This, Paul writes, i.e. this ambition to reach the unreached, this ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. You see, Paul's ambition has caused him to make some plans and to take some decisions. He would have loved to have gone to Rome earlier. In chapter 1, verse 11, he says he longs to see them. Chapter 1, verse 13, he's planned many times to be with them, but has been prevented from doing so until now. We say, what has prevented him? Well, at least in part, this burning gospel ambition. His desire to see the gospel preached where Christ is not known. He could have gone to Rome earlier. It wouldn't have been a wrong thing to do. He could have preached the gospel in a place where the church was already established. It would have been good ministry. Back in chapter 1 verse 13 he says he would have loved to have seen a harvest among them. Yet his ambition hindered his going to them. His ambition drove him elsewhere. We see in chapter 15 and verse 19 quite where. Halfway through that verse we read this. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. See, Paul hadn't been to Rome yet because he'd been halfway around the Mediterranean from modern day Israel to Albania, preaching the gospel where Christ is not known. And now he's on the move again. Verse 23, he will go to Rome, he says, but only as a stopover. His ambition is taking him again to the regions beyond, to Spain, where the church is yet to be established. And this initiative that Paul is taking, we've got to see it is a costly initiative. 
the journey he's planning from Corinth, where he's writing, to Jerusalem, then on to Rome, then finally to Spain, is a sea journey of at least 3,000 miles further if he was to go by land. John Stotts writes this about Paul's planned journey. When one reflects on the uncertainties and hazards of ancient travel, the almost nonchalant way in which Paul announces his intention to undertake these three voyages is quite extraordinary. To fulfil his gospel ambition, Paul needed to take costly initiative. There was a price to pay. There was a cost to be counted. There were decisions to be made. Easy in some ways, isn't it, on a, on a day given over to thinking about world mission, to be fired up about the concepts of the gospel going to those who've yet to hear. Of course, we want to be inspired by the thought of seeing the least reached, reached of seeing churches established where there is yet to be a church. Who doesn't want to see that if we're a follower of Jesus today? Yet much harder, of course, to see those ambitions realised. Friends, if we're to see the gospel preached where Christ is not known, we need to take some costly initiative. We need to, to make some plans. We need to take some decisions. We need to do some things at the expense of other good things. We need to do some things now which will mean other things perhaps never. And all of that comes at a cost. It comes at a cost for those who go. And it comes at a cost for those who send. We say that not only because of Paul's own costly plans that we've read about in Romans 15. But again, from the context of that quote taken from Isaiah chapter 53. How can the nations be sprinkled? How can those who have never heard understand? How can those who have never been told see? Well, the answer the Bible gives us is through the suffering of God's servant, through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. Let me read again from Isaiah chapter 53. These are the words that immediately follow the quotes. For what they were not told they will see, and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Friends, I hope this is the saviour that we all follow this morning. The one who went to the cross to take on himself the punishments that our sin deserved. Friend, if you do trust in Jesus, this is the kind of saviour that you follow, a suffering servant. And if we're to realise our gospel ambition, if we're going to make it our priority to preach the gospel where Christ is not known, well then of course there are some big decisions before us. I wonder what might this costly initiative look like? 
In the 1930s, there were <clears throat> three men called Fred, all missionaries with UFM. They had this kind of gospel ambition. They were preparing to take the good news to a tribe that had never heard before uh, in the Amazonian area of Brazil. And so they took some costly initiative. You get a real sense of that from a letter that one of them wrote as they prepared to go to the tribe. This is written by Fred Wright. He says, to whom it may concern. In the event of not turning up again, I wish that those things that belong to my brother, J.E. Wright, be returned to him. They consist of one revolver, one concertina, five medical books called, I think, Household Physician. Give the rest of my kit to those who may, God willing, continue the advance to the Kyopo. Signed 14th of May, 1935. Off they went, but they never came back. They bore the greatest price that others might hear. They gave their lives. Praise God, in time others followed, including family members, and the church was established amongst the Kayopo people. But you know, I want to say this morning that this kind of costly ambition, it is not just something for the mission biographies. It's not just a way of living that's for another century great danger again when we think about mission history we idealize the past we we, we look back almost with a, with a sense of well wasn't that quaint back in the day when people lived like that no friends this same gospel ambition and costly initiative is being taken by thousands of believers around the world today many of yourselves included praise god I wonder when it comes to your ongoing involvement in world mission as a church, what might this costly initiative look like? Well, for many of you, it will mean going on making financial decisions with the nations and eternity in mind, being shrewd with your financial resources that God has entrusted to you, continuing to invest in people who one day you will send, knowing that others will benefit from the ministry they, they, they have. For others of you, well, it might, it might mean for some seeing prayers for workers answered very close to home. With God calling some of our children into overseas missionary work or our grandchildren. Facing the pain of goodbyes at departures and feeling acutely the distance from family. Some of you listening, you know that pain. It's a daily, daily reality. For others of you, it will mean giving up living the dream here in the UK, a dream that you've worked so hard to attain. Maybe returning to your home country to serve where the church might be weaker, where there might be fewer Christians and smaller salaries. Maybe even disappointed parents who just can't understand why you would give it all away. Being back home, but perhaps not feeling quite at home anymore. It will mean continued time and energy poured into supporting those that you send. The bar is set so high, isn't it, in the New Testament for the ministry of sending. In 3 John, we read about people being sent in a, in a manner worthy of the Lord. If we're to send and support missionaries, as many of you already know, it means financial cost. It involves visits 
and debriefs. It involves conversations about the kids and their education. It involves practical arrangements for times on home leave, tear-filled conversations over the heartaches that they will endure. And that's just the beginning of the list. And then, of course, for others, this costly initiative will mean being sent where you've never been before. Let me just give one example as we bring things to a conclusion. UFM missionary friends of ours who were, who were sent in recent years to the Middle East from their church. This is what costly initiative has looked like for them. Career potential in dentistry and engineering given over. Not given up. Used in the service of the Lord, but, but the, 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 the worldly potential of those careers given over to the Lord. The prospect of a growing bank balance, surrendered. All of their stuff sold off, given away, or packed in a box and stuffed in a loft. Realising their gospel ambition already has meant goodbyes to friends, goodbyes to church, goodbyes for the kids with their grandmas and their grandpas. Costly initiative has meant trusting the Lord for their two small children taking them out of an education system that is world class and a health system that on the whole is known and works very well indeed and into a country recovering from war where security is volatile and support structures are weak. And then of course there'll be the unseen sacrifices, the tears when separation from family and friends feels too much to bear, the frustrations of life in a new language, the daily beneath the surface stress of of living cross-culturally and always, maybe even 20, 30 years down the line, always being seen as the foreigner in the place where you live. Costly initiative for them means entering into battle, not knowing how long they might last on the field, making good gospel plans, not knowing if they'll come to fruition. I mean, did Paul ever make it to Spain? We don't know for sure. Friends, we can see, can't we, the call to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. It is not an easy call to answer. It is not a light ambition to embrace. But as one commentator has put it, it is absolutely essential, absolutely essential that some give themselves to this. Maybe there are one or two of you sitting there thinking, hang on a minute, Michael. I know this is kind of your job to preach in this kind of way, but isn't this, isn't this a bit extreme? The kind of costs that you're outlining. We've got enough on our plates right now with coronavirus, but even in regular days, isn't, isn't this a bit extreme? Friends, can I ask, do we believe this kind of sacrifice is worth it? Is it worth it? The couple I've just been describing serve alongside another family. This is what the, the wife of that family wrote a few months ago. I've been feeling discouraged, doubting, wanting to give up recently. Results are not exactly obvious to see. The summer has been long and hot. It often feels as though we take one step forward and then a fair few back. But then came these words, just a few days later. One of the women in the group may have crossed over from death to life. It has been wonderful to see her heart warmed towards Jesus. And we cry out through their own tears, praise God, praise God. It's worth it, isn't it? The sacrifice is worth it. This is the kind of life that Jesus calls us to live wherever we're going to be placed. 
We're to lay down our lives, to take up our cross daily and to follow him. If the gospel is to be preached where Christ is not known, friends, we need to see gospel ambition and costly initiative in our lives and in our churches. May God strengthen us to live in this way. May he move our hearts and may he go on reminding us that the harvest is still plentiful and the workers are still few. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the reminder from your word that there are still parts of the world where the gospel is yet to go. Father, would you move our hearts for these peoples and for these places? And would you remind us too, Lord, that we don't enter into this great responsibility on our own. You don't just leave us to it, but you go before us. And we have that wonderful promise that the Lord Jesus Christ will be with us to the very end of the age. We thank you that ultimately this is your mission. We thank you that ultimately it is as certain that the gospel will go to the nations as it is certain that Jesus died and rose again. And so we enter this, we enter this world, this mission with our confidence, not in ourselves, but in you. Father, would you again stir our hearts? Would you help us to be faithful senders? And would you raise up others to go? And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.